Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We'll go to the book of James today, and we're also going to go to the book of 1 Kings, because James refers to a story from the Old Testament, and I want to touch on both stories so we understand everything James is saying when it talks about prayer. The fifth chapter of James, there's this little cluster of verses, starting in the 13th verse, where James says, Is any among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Notice how he flows right into his next thought. Elijah, that's where he points back to this Old Testament story. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Uh, Incidentally, you you don't find in the Old Testament story any time reference on the three and a half years. Jesus mentioned that, and James mentioned three and a half years, but you do not understand the three and a half years of drought by reading the Old Testament story by itself. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What an interesting passage. We who are not cessationists, we who believe that the Miracles of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit did not end just because the original apostles died, but they continue on to uh, ongoing generations. We who are not cessationists, this is one of our common passages. We read this that you mean we can really be healed. Isn't that good news that God's still in the healing business today? God hasn't withheld from us any of these gifts and blessings and said, well, it's just for a certain generation of people. The rest of you are just going to have to satisfy yourselves by reading about what they got. But no, we can be a part of that. We can experience the power of God in our lives, and we should. So James talks about how prayer and how healing should be a part of our religious worship, should be a part of our experiences in life. I want to give you a brief primer on reading epistles before I get into this. Because you do not read epistles the same way you read the Gospels, and you do not read the Gospels the same way you read the Old Testament. They read differently. In the Gospels, there's a story oftentimes, some account of what Jesus did or the circumstances surrounding the ministry of Jesus. And there might be two stories within a chapter. There might be a chapter that takes up an entire story or chapters that do with his, have to do with his teachings. In the epistles, there aren't really any stories. You, you probably are now saying, well, you know, that's right. And I don't remember meeting, reading any narratives in the epistles. These are, these are letters. So you don't read them the same as you read a story. In the Old Testament, a story might take chapters. The story of Joseph takes up so much of the book of Genesis. You have to read the whole thing to get the story. You don't read an epistle like that. As a matter of fact, an epistle is a letter. And how many of you get maybe a Christmas letter from family? Any of you get those? Some of you. Some of you may write Christmas letters. 
And if I were to take your letter and say, now what is the point of this letter, the singular point of this letter, the best I could do is just say to inform people of what's going on in my life and our family. That's about it. There's no other major point to mine out of that. So when you read an epistle, your letters, if I were to read them, or next time you get a letter from somebody, a Christmas letter, a family letter, find out how many different subjects are in that letter. Every paragraph seems to change subjects. And it's got how many paragraphs in it. So you get a letter and they talk about everything. That was an epistle. And how many of you remember reading the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John? And this guy changes subjects like a machine gun, rapid fire. From one verse to the next, he's talking about something else. And if you're looking for flow of thought... In 1st, 2nd, 2nd, and 3rd John, you're going to be disappointed. There's not a lot of flow there. He just changes subjects. James does that a little bit. So in the 5th chapter of James, if you read the 5th chapter, you're going to find out he does not have one flow, continuous thought in this 5th chapter, but he flits. And you've got a, almost this thing divided into thirds. The first uh, third of that chapter, he starts off with the subject matter of condemning rich people. Now, it's not just because people have enough money to be able to live comfortably that they are condemned. It's because he's talking about the kind of rich people that their riches stand between them and their love for God and their service to God, their devotion to God. So we put this in context of what he's talking about and how easily that can happen. So he he condemns these rich people. In the next one-third of that group of scriptures in the fifth chapter, he suddenly changes and forgets all about talking about rich people and he addresses Christian brothers, brothers and sisters And in this next section, this second third, this second section, he talks about three different subjects. Patience in waiting for the coming of the Lord. And then quickly he moves to warning against grumbling against one another. Then he talks about patience in the face of suffering and the benefit of perseverance. And then this seemingly unconnected thought about not swearing by heaven or earth in order to make your words you speak more believable. Just say it simply yes or simply no. And when he said that, what he was talking about is some of you people, you might have just a normal conversation, but whenever you want to have a a real emphasis on uh, telling the truth, you begin to, what he said, swear by heaven. I swear by heaven, this is true. As though the rest of the things you say without saying that are probably questionable. And James says that's not the way you ought to communicate. Everything you say ought to be true and you shouldn't have to resort to these outlandish, I swear by heaven it is. Because just speak the truth. Let a yes be an honest yes. Let a no be an honest no. And Don't resort to anything more flowery than that. Then he goes to the last one-third of the chapter where I picked up reading, and he's changed gears again. There's one continuous thought that flows from the second group to the third group, and then he, he, he keeps going back to this thought of perseverance. And that is one common uh, element in the second and the third parts of this chapter. So in the last one-third of the chapter, this subject matter now talks about three different kinds of people and how they ought to conduct themselves. He says, troubled people ought to pray. Is that not basic 101 or not? I mean, you didn't come to church today for me to tell you this great revelatory message that people, you got trouble, you ought to pray. Amen, let's go home. Guess what we learned today? You pray, we're in trouble. You go, oh, yeah, of course we do. But he's just kind of saying that, that to, to react honestly to your situation surrounding you, the proper thing to do is pray. So I thought to myself, well, what else would they do? What else do people do but pray? Some curse God when they're in trouble because they don't have that faith that trusts and believes that he can really change the circumstances or that he really loves them and cares for them. So they get into trouble and they blame God. They're angry with him. What else do people in trouble do? Well, sometimes they do a whole lot more worrying than they do praying. Maybe a whole lot more griping and complaining than they do praying. But 
We must not despair. We must pray. We must not quit, but we have to pray. We shouldn't murmur and complain, but we should pray. It's simple. Then the next thing he says is happy people ought to sing. And maybe there's some of you that you know you can't sing. But you ought to because you don't have any better justification for singing than being happy because you're running to never get another chance. But if you're happy, you don't literally have to sing. But why not? Why not sing to the top of your voice while you're driving down the road? You're happy. In other words, what James is saying is not literally you have to sing, even though songs just kind of tend to leak out when you're happy. Have you ever noticed that? But if you're happy, demonstrate your happiness. Can we put it that way? Is that, is that broad enough to get the point that James is saying? Let troubled people pray and let happy people express their happiness. And the old adage that you, you are quite aware of just says, if you're happy, would you notify your face? Because sometimes we fail to convey the joy And the happiness is in us because we have a permanent scowl. You ever seen anybody that looks like they they got a long face? They look like they could eat oats out of a gas pipe. I'll tell you what, have you ever seen them smile? If you're happy, for crying out loud, show that you're happy. Smile. Be tell somebody. We know you're miserable. We just want to know you have a happy day once in a while. So he says, it's okay. If you're happy, sing. If you're happy, smile. If you're happy, dance. If you're happy, let people know. They bear your burden with you. They also want to rejoice with you. Then he goes to the third group of people and said, if you're sick, now we have the first one, if you're in trouble, pray. If, if the second one, if you're happy, just feel free to express it. And the third one, if you're sick, and it's interesting what he says we ought to do. If you're sick, if anyone is sick among you, let them call on the elders of the church. Now, this is one reason I wanted to preach first and pray later. Because we as human beings sometimes have a hesitation to move out from our comfort zone. We have a hesitation sometimes to humble ourselves and ask for prayer. There's two things about this prescription from James. If you're sick, call for help. The first one has to do with being humble enough to say, I can't handle this by myself. Submitting yourselves to the spiritual power and authority of somebody else in this moment. But you know how many people are. They don't even like the doctor to get involved in their sicknesses. I'm a little bit like that. I don't go running to him every time I ache. I like to fight my way through it. And sometimes that's to the frustration of my wife. You know, she thinks there's times when I should go, and, and I maybe should have. Maybe she knows, maybe I look sicker than I think I am. I don't know. But I like to fight through that. That's, that's in one level. That's, that's in one arena. But when you put this in an arena of reaching out for prayer from somebody else, we should never let pride stand in our way of somebody praying for us. If you're sick, just call. Now, what does it say? If any are sick among you, let them call on the elders of the church. What does it not say? Well, there's a lot of things it doesn't say. If you're sick, let the elders call you. Now, the point is, see, I've been pastoring since 1980. Do the math for me. How many years? I'm 34 years. And it never ceases to amaze me that there are some people that are convinced I have ESP. And therefore, when they get sick, I just ought to show up because I've got this, this lightning rod, this, this thing that homes in to sick people. 
And believe it or not, you're not going to, you're not going to believe this, but you probably will. Then they come back to church, to church miffed. Because they were sick and got well before I ever knew it. If you're sick, call. That's, that's the only thing James says you have to do. Just find the strength to call. Let somebody know. But then, when you call the elders of the church, you are submitting yourself to somebody else. You're getting past that pride part. And that's an important thing. James recognizes number two about this. It's not not only is it a humility thing, but he also recognizes in calling that a sick person doesn't often feel like praying up a cloud. You ever been that sick? If you could pray, you prayed to die. But you were too far gone to pray to get well. God, I'm miserable. Just kill me right now. I'm hurting. But your prayers are not very eloquent. They're not very well-formed. You're... you're more concerned about just trying to survive the moment than you are about really getting into a prayer meeting. And James seems to be sensitive to that. If you're sick, let somebody else do the praying for you. And that's a big relief that I can acknowledge God and I can mentally connect with him and I can even say, God, I'm sick, please heal me. But the healing virtue of knowing that somebody else who's not sick is willing to come and pray fervently for you. It's important that we understand what James is trying to get us to understand. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. So call people to get this prayerful support when you're sick. The prayer of faith saves the sick. And then he says if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Because there's no use dealing with just the uh, physical part of this if you don't take the opportunity to deal with the spiritual part as well. James indicates that's an important element here. It's not just a matter of getting you well, but while you've been lying there so sick and feeling like you're at death's door, you've probably been doing some repenting. You've probably been thinking, even though it's erroneous, you've probably been thinking, this is payback for the way I've been behaving. God is after me. And if I had been better, I probably wouldn't be sick. Now, I don't, I don't want you to think that's true, but we tend to try and find cause, don't we? And so all this guilt starts coming out when we're sick. And we make all these promises to God when we're sick. Lord, if you ever get me back on my feet again, I'm going to win the world for you. We have, these, we have these conversations with God that come out so clearly and so powerfully when we're sick. And James says, let's deal with the sin thing as well. Because when you're down like that, you have a lot of time to reflect on life. Have a lot of time to align your spirit with God. And he says the prayer of faith will save the sick. If he's sinned, his sins will be forgiven. And then he just throws in this for good measure. Confess your sins and pray one for another so that you may be healed. Because there's something that James is implying that has to do with the presence of unrepented sins in our life. And the blessings of God's healing power. I don't think that James is making an emphatic, direct correlation that if you have one sin in your life, you can't get healed. I think that'd be foolish. But I think he's implying that we should be sensitive to the fact that it can get to the point in our life. If we're in rebellion, if we're not listening to God, if our spirits are not sensitive to him, that there's other relationship problems before God's ever interested in dealing with healing your physical body. He wants to heal your spiritual person first. He wants to deal with that. That's what he's ultimately interested in because even a healed body is going to die someday. But he wants to get the spirit right. So he throws this in and says, just go ahead and confess your sins and get them out of the way. And then there will be a clear pathway without any hindrances for you addressing God and for the people praying for you to address God for you to be healed. So it's a, it's a logical thing. Make sure your relationship is right with God. And then James, after talking about this prayer and this healing, he refers to the story of Elijah 
and he emphasizes the effectiveness of prayers of a righteous person. And says Elijah was just a common person. He was a man subject to like passions, such as we are. The King James Version puts it that way. But the other versions just say, he's just a common man. But his prayers were different. And so, basically, we can't say, yeah, but that was Elijah. He was a prophet. Who am I? And James is laying that aside and say, don't go there. It's not because he was a prophet that his prayers were answered. It had to do with something else. He was a common man used by God as a prophet. He was subject to like passions. In other words, he was vulnerable to the same kinds of temptations and failures that I'm vulnerable to. Common man. But he prayed. And things happened when he prayed. And just as a quick reference to Elijah's powerful prayers, he quickly says, he prayed for it not to rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again for it to rain, and it rained again. And he points to him as a man that has righteous prayers, powerful prayers, and then says, that's the kind of prayers that you can have that you should have. I know you're not going to, everybody, be a prophet for God, like Elijah was a prophet. But I think the interesting thing is, you can have a prayer life that moves God. You. No excuses for saying, well, I'm not. It doesn't make any difference. You can touch God. So I've got to go back to the story of Elijah in the Old Testament to pull out some of the elements of the ministry of Elijah so I can more fully understand what James is saying to me when he's saying, if Elijah do it, can do it, you can do it. So we now go back to the Old Testament, the first Kings chapter 18. And I pick up in the 42nd verse. I'll quickly read just a handful of verses. It says, So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. It was a very humble position. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went and looked up. There's nothing there, he said. And seven times Elijah said, go back. So we're going to assume in this very short, concise little narrative that Elijah prayed, then he sent his servant to a point where he could look out over the Mediterranean Sea where the storms would normally come from. And the servant would come back and say, I see see no indication of rain coming. And Elijah prayed again. We don't know the time factor here. But he prayed again. We, We have to believe that there was some time of supplication. There was some time of intercession. There was some time of connecting with God. So he prayed not just a short prayer, but he prayed, spent some time, and sent his servant again. And the servant came back again and said, there's nothing. Seven times this went on. The seventh time, the servant reported, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea, which we would probably understand that to mean that in the distance there was a cloud that no matter how big the cloud was, it was far enough in the distance that if a man, person held their hand up, they could probably cover the cloud. So it's just distant, not very large, but at least it was a sign of something. Now, this part that I read, what happened here when Elijah went to pray for rain follows on the heels of the story of the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah, the only true prophet of the living God, and all the other false prophets. You remember that story. We don't have to enlarge on that to a great degree, but... It was the story of Elijah successfully calling on his God to answer by fire and lick up the sacrifice and the utter failure of the false prophets to have their God take their sacrifice by fire. When Elijah succeeded, 
in having God lick up the sacrifice that was saturated with water, as well as lick up all of the water that filled the trenches from the overflow of saturating the sacrifice. It was a very decisive act of God, a very convincing act that whenever Elijah was done, he said, now take the false prophets and go kill them all. And then he turns to Ahab, and he says, Ahab, go down the mountain and have something to eat. Indicates that Ahab may have been doing some fasting during this time. Go down the mountain, break your fast, have something to eat. I hear the sound of rain coming. Get down off the mountain, it's going to rain You need to beat the storm. It's going to be treacherous getting off this mountain when the storm hits. Three and a half years earlier, Elijah's the one that pronounced the drought on the land because of the rebellion of the people, because of the wickedness of the king. And he had had it. And he said, that's it. I've had it. It's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain. And he left. He disappeared. And I'm sure it didn't worry anybody for the first day or two or week or month. But then as the creeks begin to dry up and the wells begin to dry up, things became desperate in the land. And Ahab begins to say, find that prophet. We've got to find that prophet. Well, he was hard to find. And three and a half years later, when they did finally find him, That brought us to the scene of the showdown on Mount Carmel. That brought us to the execution of all the false prophets. And Elijah now proclaiming Jehovah God to be the only God. And you people need to turn back to him and quit your nonsense with all of these false prophets that you've gotten involved in. And Elijah says, you go down and eat. I'm going to go up and pray. Two different directions altogether. So Ahab goes down the mountain, and Elijah takes his servant, and they go up a little bit farther. Now, faith's importance, it almost goes without saying. Every one of you are going to come to the point in your life when you're going to want to have the faith like Elijah had it. You're going, nothing else is going to do. You might think of a lot of other things, but you're going to want and need that faith. Without the faith, obviously people compensate for those difficult times in their life. We compensate with weaker things, weaker tools, and never to any real degree of success. Sometimes we just worry our way through the trials, but that's not as good as faith. Sometimes we just try to outlast the trial, but that's not as good as faith. Sometimes people resort to escapism, and they will drink their troubles away just so they don't have to to come to the grips with the reality of it. Going into a, a false world, that's not as good as faith. And then some people just believe it just takes a little harder effort and a better plan to get through their trouble, but that's not as good as faith. What you really need, the importance, the importance of faith is that whether you think you need it today or not, there's going to come a time when you're going to wish that you had the confidence in being able to pray the prayer of a righteous person that changes things. You're going to want that. You're going to need that. So it's something that is desirable. It's something we should all be looking for in our life. Elijah found himself in that position. He knew how to pray, and these were the occasions where he was glad he knew how to pray. He had already promised rain before there was any physical, visible evidence of it. He had already told the king, it's going to rain, go down and hold a feast and celebrate, it's going to rain. Then he goes back and says, now I've got to pray up some rain. So he's committed himself. James also alluded to the saints finding themselves in this situation where they needed Elijah-type of faith. 
and uses the illustration of the sick person to say, one of these days you're going to need to know how to pray like Elijah prayed. And not just the sick person, but what about when you're the one that's called upon to pray for the sick person? And you're standing there feeling like a weakling, a spiritual weakling. You say, well, I don't know why they called on me. I don't seem to have enough power to blow the fuzz off a peanut. Get somebody that knows how to pray. But don't you wish at that point when somebody wants you to pray that you knew how to pray? I had a friend of mine who uh, is a missionary. And he has multiple doctor's degrees. Uh, Very highly educated man. But what a humble man and what a powerful spiritual man that he is. And I had him come to my church a couple of different times and minister to us. And he's the kind of man that when he just opens up the word, it just flows and you can just drink it in. And just like the more he gives, the thirstier you are. The last time I had him to my church, uh, he said, I want you to pray for me. Uh, here's, here's the man with m- multiple PhDs. And here I am, the lowly pastor of a mountain church. And he says, I want you to pray for me. Okay, you know, I'll pray for you. And I, I, I viewed him as a spiritual giant. So I reached out, he was standing in front of me, and I laid my hands on his shoulders. And he immediately took my hands and moved them and placed them on his head. I didn't know the significance of that. He didn't want me praying for his shoulders. <laughs> I want me to pray for his head. But I remember that. that it was just something that happened that was such a, an odd thing. Most of the time, when you reach out to pray for somebody, you just touch something, and they're happy. Pray for Uh, lay a hand on their shoulder, lay it on their arm, lay it on their head. Okay, no, he had plans. I reach out and lay it on the head. And my my hands are moved immediately to his skull. And there, he holds my hands firmly to his head. And now I feel like I've really got to pray something fancy because this has gotten very sophisticated at this point. You know, head prayers are far more important than shoulder prayers. I'm thinking, Lord, something's going on here. I'm going to have to really conjure up a cloud now. I found out after he had left my church, he had just been diagnosed with brain cancer. I don't know if he knew when he was at my church and didn't tell me or just sensed something was wrong. But after I found that out, not only was I humbled that this man would ask me to pray for him. Not only was I feeling like I was being led like a child (laughs) in how to pray, but I also felt extremely humbled after the fact to know that this man called on somebody for prayer much deeper than I am. And I needed the confidence of believing that I could touch God. That's the moment when it would have been very important for me to say, I know God answers prayer. I know he actually hears me. I don't have to be an important anybody. Just me. I remember in that same church where that missionary came and visited and I had that little uh, prayer experience. In that same church, I had another evangelist come that he was well known as being a healing evangelist. And you probably... uh, had never heard of his name, and I had not heard of him either. But he was actually in, his name was in the Encyclopedia Britannica at that time as being an example of a healing evangelist. And I said, I have to see this. And I went and looked him up. Sure enough, there he was. Why they chose him, I don't know. Very humble man. He wasn't like your typical evangelist that comes in and just froths at the mouth and gets things whipped up. He's a very humble man that stood just motionless behind the pulpit and just opened up God's word and began to minister the word. And when he was done, he very humbly began to pray for people. And this man had told one of my deacons, I know the, 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 the chronology on this is, is not is exactly like I want it, but I'm not going to waste time trying to straighten out all the whens and the wheres and the hows in order. But this man had, had 
talked to one of my deacons, and the deacon said, I would sure love for you to come over to a friend's house. She has cancer, and they're not expecting her to live. Would you come and pray for her? And that evangelist said, no, you go pray. And the deacon was uh, astonished. He said, well, okay, a little disappointed. You know, here's this, this famous, successful healing evangelist, and he won't even go pray for somebody. He said, you go pray. So the deacon did. He went over there, and he said, well, he said, I invited the minister to come over and pray, and he wouldn't do it, but he told me to come pray, so here I am. So he, just in simple faith, he had never, never done this before. He'd probably been a part of prayer groups in the church, but he had never gone out as though he was the man bringing the prayer. He went over there and said, so here I am. Can I pray for you? And the, and the lady said, sure. And he laid his hands on her, and he prayed. And you know, God completely healed that lady. And she lived. She was dying, and she lived. Made a complete recovery. And that man was completely astonished. He says, I can't believe that I was used like that. You can be used of God. For my deacon, his part was he was obedient to a word that came forth. You do it. And his obedience, even though he can't say that he had all the faith in the world. And I'm not trying to stand up here and preach mental assent. That all you've got to do is just fix it in your mind. It's going to be and it's going to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being obedient. Just his simple obedience. And God worked through him. And a righteous man prayed the prayer of faith. And the sick was raised up. You can do that. We're all going to be in the position one day where we need that faith of Elijah. Number two, there's faith's disappointments. And we, we go to that part where Elijah is praying, and then they're searching, and there's nothing. He's praying again, and they're searching again, and there's nothing. And seven times he did that. Now that span of time between the first petition and the actual answer received, that represents for us the times of our disappointments. When we're reaching out to God and we're not receiving and we get confused and we think, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's not listening. All these silly accusations that we know is not true, but this, this is the mental battle we fight. Maybe God just doesn't do this anymore, the enemy might suggest to you. Maybe it's all just a fairy tale. Maybe I've believed in, in uh, fable all along. You, you have all these doubts coming, all this discouragement, and you pray and you noth- nothing happens. That is the span of time between your petition and the answer. For Elijah, it wasn't a long time, but it was, it was a protracted time for a man that was accustomed to saying, don't rain and it doesn't, and do rain and it does. For a man who is able to raise the dead, like Elijah did. For a man who is able to call down fire out of heaven and consume companies of 50 and their captain. And just, he just speaks and things happen. And all of a sudden he speaks and nothing happens. And Elijah had to make a decision. What do you do now? My prayers don't seem to be working. It's not that instantaneous. So he decides to pray again. It took seven times, but I'll guarantee you, Elijah did not know it was going to take seven times. He didn't know if it was going to be seven or 70. He didn't know. But he set the pattern that he prayed until something happened. We're in this disappointment. James talks about perseverance in that opening passage. There are those who don't have patience or perseverance or faith to make it past their third or fourth prayer. They've prayed, they've prayed earnestly, but they don't see any evidence. There's a wake-up moment. Everybody say, evidence. They don't see it. And at this time, they're going discouraged. And James kind of eases into this issue of prayer by first talking about persevere. 
Be patient and persevere in view of the coming of the Lord because it's going to happen, guaranteed. Next, he says, be patient and persevere in the face of suffering because you're going to come out of it, I promise you. And then he takes him to the next level, which would have been more than a baby step, just to go straight there. But now that he said, you know that you can be patient in view of the coming of the Lord, you know you can be patient in coming through your trials. Now he says, just be patient in prayer. And pray like Elijah. If it didn't work on the first prayer, why not pray again? Why settle for an answer of denial from the enemy? Just because God has decided, not the first time, not the second time, not the third time, we'll go away and say, well, the enemy must be right. And what a feeling it is to keep praying and persevering in prayer without giving up. Now, here's the reality of it. You're going to pray some prayers that you're going to pray till the day you die, and you'll not see it happen. But that's not the point. The point is God wants you to persevere. He wants you not to give up. And if there are things where he wants you to pray four times before it happens, you better be ready to pray four times. And if you can't pray seven prayers without giving up, you can't make it to the end of life without getting up. Because there's going to be some things that are going to plague you the whole way that all he wants you to do is just persevere. That's your job. It's his job to decide when he's going to bring that. But our obligation is don't quit. Don't give up. Some of those things are going to come in the process of prayer. Some of those things you may not see, but somebody else may see it because you didn't give up praying. Number three. Faith's victory. And Elijah calls out to God. And by the seventh, at the end of the seventh prayer, they see the evidence. Now, how much evidence do you want? For Elijah, it was just a cloud, just a small cloud. But he knew in his spirit that was the evidence. And that's all he needed. He didn't have to keep on until the sky was covered. Just the cloud. That's all I need. Now I'm satisfied. And after the seventh prayer and seeing the cloud, he said, the answer's coming. Let's go. The only God who can send fire down out of heaven is also the God who can send rain down out of heaven. The only God who can send fire and rain is the same God who can heal your body. So no wonder he takes us to the story of Elijah. If God can send fire and look up the, uh, uh, the sacrifice, and if God can send rain, and in the drought, God can touch you. What do you need from him? So James encourages sick people you can receive a touch from God. Just call on the spiritually mature Christians and call on somebody who knows how to pray like Elijah prayed. Call on the elders. Now, who are the elders? The elders are not to be understood just to be certain people appointed to sit on the board of a church. Even though it would be tragic to have anybody in leadership at the church that doesn't have any faith. My board members know. My deacons know. If they're going to sit on the deacon board, they have to be a spiritual person. And we can bring a lot of, of carnal understanding, worldly understanding to a board meeting, and sometimes that's to the detriment of a board. Somebody comes in and they have a lot of experience in different areas, and you bring that to the board. There's times when that is valuable, but that's not going to cut it when it's time for that person to be a spiritual person. Every church I've ever pastored, I've expected my board members to be able and available to pray for somebody when they're sick. That's a part of it. That's a part of leadership. Leadership is not just knowing what to do. Leadership is being willing to do what needs to be done. 
And it's a joy for me to know that board members can just drop in on somebody and visit them and have prayer with them. It's a joy for me to know that spiritual leaders in the church can themselves visit the hospital. I had a church in Oakhurst, California, where I I had encouraged the leadership of the church. Don't wait for the pastor to be the focal point of all prayer. You people, I'm, I'm challenging you to step out and you to pray for people. And it's the only church that I, I had in all of my ministry up to that point where I could walk in on a Sunday morning and see little prayer groups spontaneously throughout the entire church because they would be visiting with people. How many of you visit with somebody when you come to church? How many of you in the process of visiting with somebody realize they got problems? Well, these people had got it. It caught on that whenever they were visiting, it was not just about realizing that the person they're talking to had problems. They stopped and they began to pray. And I, I could walk through that church at any moment and someplace, somebody could possibly be broken out in a little prayer meeting, gathered around praying for somebody. And sometimes I thought, I'm just going to sneak on over there and join that prayer group. They got something going. There was many times... When somebody would call me that somebody was in the hospital, before I got to the hospital, they had already been visited by three or four other deacons or three or four other church members who had already been there. Because that's what the body is all about. Not about hiring somebody that's going to go around and take care of all this business. It's about getting people to realize if you are any kind of a leader, that also implies being a spiritual leader. Taking the responsibility of a spiritual leader. Sunday school teacher, you're a spiritual leader. Deacon board member, you're a spiritual leader. Prayer team member, you're a spiritual leader. And we go down the list. Whatever. Even a person in this church that you've been a Christian longer than anybody else here... We would like to think you're a spiritual leader because there's a difference. There's a big difference between being a Christian for 40 years and being a one-year Christian 40 times. One is spiritual maturity. The other one, you, you're, just, you're spinning your wheels. You're not getting anywhere. So if you've been a Christian here longer than anybody else, you would be what they would consider in the Jewish culture an elder. See, in the Jewish culture, before the church ever came along, they always had elders. Elders were people who had experience. They had wisdom. They, they knew, because of life's experiences, the right things to do and the wrong things to do, and the people looked to their elders for guidance. They looked to their elders for a lot of things. The elders took care of, of uh, uh, judging matters. The elders also took care of looking after sick people. The Jewish community did not have doctors per se for years. Did you realize that? You don't read in the Old Testament that they had their own physician. They didn't have it. They had elders. Elders took care of everything. Elders, commonly, people would call on elders and say, we've got somebody sick over here, like the, maybe the tribes would do, if you can just imagine, uh, in, a, uh, in an area where, where they might have witch doctors or something. they got somebody, take them over there, and they're going to put the lotions on them, and, they, and do the incantations. Well, the, the Jews had elders that if you were sick, the elders did the spiritual thing. And one of the first things that they did, because oil was so important in those days, is they'd take over oil and begin to rub the body down. It had, they believed it had healing properties. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Remember when they found the man beaten by the side of the road? What did he do with it? Didn't he pour the oil in? Where did he get the oil? It was so important in that culture, they carried it everywhere. It was like you ladies with purses, you've got a little medicine kit in there somewhere. If I get to where I can't preach, one of you's got a cough drop. Somebody's got an aspirin. You've got those things that it takes to meet those. Well, this is these people. They, they took oil everywhere. You never knew when you're going to have to whip out the oil. So James is very much speaking to his culture when he said, well, the very first thing you want to do is do what you would normally do. Call the people and let them come over and let them use the olive oil and do what they can. But then, he said, the prayer of faith. 
is going to save the sick. Now, the order of those things is very important because the first thing it says is there's nothing wrong with doing the medicinal practices you think you need to do to help out. You got a headache, take an aspirin, but call somebody to pray. You know, that, that's how that translates into our culture. Do what you normally would do. You, you got a sore throat, then you take something to soothe the sore throat and call somebody to pray. If you need to go to the doctor, go to the doctor, but call somebody to pray. And so you take care of what you can take care of. That's the reason they did that. Now, if you want to be really biblical with anointing oil, you better get ready for a bath because they didn't paint a cross on your forehead. Uh-uh. They rubbed you down. You got down and you, 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 was, you slick. This was a whole body treatment. Had a friend of mine one time that figured that out. He, he'd been reading the Bible and he decided, you know, it's not just a dab on the forehead. That, that, that's, he said, I figured out they were, they were just, they were drenching these people in oil. So he went to pray for a man in the church and he got him a big gallon bottle of oil and just poured it over his head, ruined his suit. But the prayer of faith, everybody say faith. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Are you a leader? You have a responsibility to be able to pray a prayer of faith. It was James' intention to motivate people to pray. It was James' intention to encourage us that when we pray, we ought to pray earnestly. And we ought to pray perseveringly. And we can, if we do that, anticipate that God will intervene in our behalf because he's that kind of God. It was James' intention to teach us that if we're sick, we should be humble enough to ask for somebody to pray for us. Instead of just saying, don't worry, I've got this covered. That's not a part of it. It's saying, I need you to pray for me. James uses the story of Elijah not to demonstrate the powerful prayers of a prophet, but the prayers of just a common person. That's you and me. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Subject to the same kind of afflictions and trials and struggles that I'm subject to, and no excuses. And James says, we can. We say we can't pray like a prophet. James says, oh, yes, we can. We can pray just like Elijah. He didn't pray three prayers and then quit. He prayed the prayer of faith. He kept praying. He wasn't discouraged by the lack of immediate evidence. He prayed until he saw the cloud in the distance. And that's all he needed to know, that God was on the move. So when this righteous man prayed, he prayed until something happened. That's what I want you to take with you today. Pray until something happens. And if I make an acrostic out of that, pray until something happens. P-U-S-H. That's your method of prayer. Push. Pray until something happens. Don't pray one prayer and give up. Pray. Perseverance. Pray until something happens. God will respond to that kind of prayer. Would our prayer team come?